You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The Hartford understands protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-size companies like yours to help manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com. Meet Gary. Gary's about to become an Einstein in an instant. Whoa, Einstein hair. I like it. That's right, Gary, because you're using Salesforce powered by Einstein AI to connect data, predict business trends, generate personalized content, and wow customers. I do feel a lot smarter. Because you're not just Gary anymore. You're Gary, empowered by Einstein AI. Did you hear that, team? I'm an Einstein. Oh, can I get a selfie? The number one AI CRM. Now everyone's an Einstein with Salesforce. You're listening to Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. The New York Attorney General is suing to dissolve the NRA, accusing the gun rights group of engaging in a massive fraud against donors. Attorney General Letitia James claims that top NRA officials, including its longtime leader, Wayne LaPierre, have been using the nonprofit organization as their personal piggy bank illegally diverting more than $64 million from the organization in the last three years alone. They use millions upon millions of dollars from the NRA for personal use, including for lavish trips for themselves and their families, private jets, expensive meals, and other private travel. My guest is Second Amendment expert Adam Winkler, a professor at UCLA Law School. Adam, the New York AG alleges massive fraud, corruption, and self-dealing. The breadth of it is stunning. What strikes you most about the allegations? Well, just the breadth of them. There's so many allegations. It does seem like the NRA leadership has been running the organization without much oversight from the board of directors, that there's insider deals for directors, there's officers like Wayne LaPierre that negotiated a secret $17 million compensation package for when he leaves the NRA. Sounds like something you'd expect in a Fortune 500 company, not a nonprofit organization like the NRA. William Brewer, the NRA's lawyer, said, the truth is the transactions in question have been reviewed, vetted, and approved. It seems like that would be a hard defense to make in light of some of these expenses, like the private jets for LaPierre's family and more than a quarter of a million dollars in designer clothes. How can they prove that those kinds of expenses were proper? Well, I think they really have no choice because the actual transactions happened. They can't deny that they happened. And under New York law, nonprofits can engage in some kinds of insider deals, but they have to follow the appropriate procedures and have to be ultimately fair and reasonable to the corporation, in this case, a nonprofit corporation. So they really have to say that these are fair and reasonable transactions because that's the only way that they're going to survive. Did the allegations come as a surprise to you, or have we heard enough in the past with you know the struggles within the NRA that these did not come as a complete surprise? 
Well, they were surprising in a few ways. You're absolutely right. There has been a steady stream of leaks coming out of the NRA's lawsuit with its longtime ad agency, Ackerman McQueen. Ackerman McQueen was responsible for the NRA's messaging for more than three decades and had really worked hand-in-hand with the NRA, including creating NRA TV and been the real brainchild behind so much of what we associate as the NRA's message. And that lawsuit is very nasty, and a lot of leaks have come out that suggest that there has been malfeasance inside the NRA. But it was nonetheless pretty surprising, these allegations, for two reasons. One, there were surprising allegations, such as the $17 million compensation package for Wayne LaPierre that hadn't come out previously, but also that the remedy sought by the New York Attorney General, dissolution of the NRA, is the kind of remedy that's really reserved for organizations that engage in persistent fraud or illegality. So it was really remarkable and surprising that such a broad and aggressive remedy was chosen. Well, this isn't the first high-profile charity that James has targeted, but the allegations that are suit against the Trump Foundation just pale in comparison to these allegations. Trump dissolved his foundation voluntarily, but the NRA is not going to do that. What are the chances that they would actually be required to dissolve? Well, it's really hard to say. Obviously, it seems hard to imagine that the NRA... Um, vast national organization with chapters in every state and training programs for police officers would actually go out of business. It seems pretty crazy, just in the sense of it's such a big organization. We wouldn't expect to see such a thing. The Trump Charitable Foundation was put out of business, but it was only Donald Trump and a few people who worked for him who were organizing that charitable foundation. It wasn't nearly the size of the NRA. I think that makes dissolution a little bit less likely because there's going to be plenty of things that the NRA has been doing that's been perfectly legal and perfectly appropriate. But I think that this is an opening salvo. In these kinds of situations, regulators often bring their charges to begin the negotiation. And it's really the negotiated settlement that really determines what the remedy will be. And I expect in this case, it'll probably be something like removal of certain directors or officers, some restitution for some of the deals and transactions that have gone on. But disillusion's probably not in the cards in the long run for the NRA. So this is not likely to go to trial in, in your view? Well, it's hard to say. You know, I definitely don't want to predict the future too much. (laughs) One of the things about requesting dissolution as a remedy, I think it does sort of put the NRAs back to the wall and makes it maybe less likely that they'll engage in a negotiated settlement. If the attorney general had simply sought to remove certain directors and certain officers like Wayne LaPierre and appoint a receiver to oversee the appointment of new directors for a short period of time, it's the kind of thing that could have put pressure on other board members to push for settlement and for a reform. But now that disillusion is on the table, I think it's going to be a long while before we get a resolution in this case. Adam, the NRA countersued accusing the attorney general of violating the group's free speech rights and unfairly targeting the gun rights lobby. Are those strong claims? I think the NRA suit is baseless and not going to go anywhere. Look, these allegations were first brought to light by the NRA's lawsuit with its ad agency. No matter who the attorney general was, whether it was Letitia James, who clearly doesn't like the NRA and has said so, or someone else, they would have had to take action in light of the grievous nature of some of the insider deals that the NRA leadership has engaged in. And I don't think that arguing that prosecutors are politically motivated really ever got any defendant very far in a court of law. 
there's a parallel lawsuit. The Washington, D.C. Attorney General opened a second front, suing the NRA for allegedly misusing charitable funds to finance improper lavish spending by executives. How does that play into this? Or does it at all? Is well, it a separate track? No, I'm sure that these prosecutions are related, uh, that these actions by the Attorney General of D.C. and the Attorney General of New York are somewhat coordinated and that they're sharing information, I'm sure. And uh, it's the same basic set of facts. Um, the, the only difference is, is that the NRA has two different nonprofit organizations. It's got its 501c3, its charitable arm. That's located in Washington, D.C., chartered in Washington, D.C. And that's the, known as the NRA Foundation. That's the one that the D.C. Attorney General is going after. And the 501c4, the National Rifle Association that we often think about, um, when we think about the NRA, that's the organization, that's uh, a social welfare corporation that's formed in New York and that the Attorney General of New York is going after. But it's the same basic set of facts. The NRA has had a lot of political clout in the past. Where does this lawsuit and the infighting that preceded it, plus the drain in financial resources, where does it leave its political clout? Well, I think the NRA still remains a very powerful player in American politics because its clout really comes from having a bunch of voters that listen to the NRA and that really care about gun rights and oppose gun control. And I think those voters are still going to make their voices heard come Election Day. At the same time, there's no way that all this disorganization and disarray and focus of the NRA on this lawsuit with Ackerman McQueen and now on these lawsuits by the New York and D.C. Attorney General, how can that not be a distraction for its top leaders? Probably won't be able to spend the kind of time and energy focusing on the 2020 election that they'd like to. How much have gun control advocates cut into the NRA financially as well as politically? Well, I think that in the recent years, gun control advocates have made great headway in terms of organization, in terms of money. You know, before the Newtown massacre back in 2012, the gun control organizations were pretty poorly organized, pretty poorly funded, and Democratic Party wasn't taking that seriously, issues of gun violence prevention. Now we've seen a real sea change, and it's become one of the issues at the very top of the Democratic Party agenda. We see gun control groups that are outspending the NRA in some elections, and they're also affecting the NRA in things like these complaints brought by the New York Attorney General and the D.C. Attorney General. A lot of this activity has been revealed through investigations by organizations like Everytown for Gun Safety and its publication, The Trace and other advocacy groups working in the space that are trying to reveal the problems with the NRA. So I don't think there's a real separation from what we're seeing from the New York Attorney General and the linkage to gun control organizations. President Trump suggested that the NRA move to Texas. Obviously, they can't move their assets while this investigation, while the lawsuit is going on. But what about starting over in a different state where the where the laws, uh, the political charities laws, may not be as strict? Well, we might see uh, the NRA and its leadership uh, form a new corporation, a new organization, a new lobbying group, maybe the National, I don't know, Revolver Association (laughs) rather than the National Rifle Association somewhere else. But the key difference here uh, is that it cannot take the NRA's assets with it. It doesn't get the, it can't take the membership list. It can't take the 
uh, assets, the buildings and the, uh, the goodwill and the brand and all the training facilities and training programs that the NRA has. That's all stuck in New York now, and just reforming a new organization in Texas is not going to change that. So uh, I don't think that even if the NRA is dissolved, we're not going to see the end of organized advocacy for the Second Amendment and opposition to gun control. Um, but it's just not going to be the NRA that's doing it. President Trump is is constantly pushing the idea that Democrats will erode your Second Amendment rights. Do you think that will be a, a big issue in the upcoming campaign? I expect uh, that Donald Trump and uh, Senate Republicans are going to make a big issue out of gun violence prevention. Uh, I think both Joe Biden and uh, Kamala Harris have come out in favor of strong, new, aggressive gun control laws. And I think that's something that... Um, or Donald Trump especially, who doesn't have a lot of good things to point to uh, right now in his election campaign, uh, demonizing Biden, issuing warnings about what law, the law is going to be like if Biden wins. It's pretty much all the president has right now, and I think that will include uh, issues of the Second Amendment and gun policy for sure. Thanks for being on the Bloomberg Law Show, Adam. That's Professor Adam Winkler of the UCLA Law School. Johann Schmiegel, you've got the world's highest IQ. Yes, 247. Wow. Did you know that thanks to Salesforce with Einstein AI, everyone's smarter? Now everyone's an Einstein, just like you. But I'm the smartest. Not anymore. With connected data and trusted AI, everyone can give customers experiences they've only dreamed of. Oh, look, here's a few Einsteins now. Hey, hi. Hola, amigo. Everyone's an Einstein? It's okay, Johan. Let it happen. The number one AI CRM. Now everyone's an Einstein with Salesforce. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. After years of legal and regulatory obstacles, Qualcomm's business model and its no-license, no-chips policy survives a legal challenge from the Federal Trade Commission. 
The Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals has thrown out a lower court decision that would have required the chip maker to renegotiate billions of dollars worth of agreements with smartphone makers, ruling that the judge was wrong to side with the FTC in finding that Qualcomm had violated antitrust law. Joining me is Jennifer Ree, Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Litigation Analyst. This is certainly a major victory for Qualcomm. Shares initially jumped more than 4% on the news of the decision. Explain why it's so important. Well, this really was major. Qualcomm couldn't have come out better than it came out with this decision. A district court had found that the way Qualcomm was licensing its patents was anti-competitive. And the licensing of its patents and the royalties are a huge part of Qualcomm's revenue. And what the district court had said is because the way Qualcomm was licensing these patents, it had to go back and it had to renegotiate basically almost all of its licensing agreement for certain modem chips, certain cellular chips of different generations that are used in our basically everybody's cell phones. And it would have really cut into Qualcomm's revenue. So what happened here with the appeal is that the appellate court basically just reversed everything as a matter of law. It said that every single practice of Qualcomm that the district court ticked through and claimed was illegal monopolization was not. And it erased everything that Qualcomm did. It vacated the injunction, and it essentially left Qualcomm free just to continue its business practices as they were before the FTC sued them in 2017. So it's a huge win for Qualcomm because it preserves this big piece of revenue that they're able to achieve with these patents. The trial judge, Lucy Coe, wrote a really thorough 233-page opinion. And Qualcomm does have this no-license, no-chips policy. It's dominant. Why did the appellate court not find that that was enough? Well, you know, it's, it's very complicated, and that's part of the reason why the district court's opinion was so long. The theories of harm that the FTC put forward are are complicated and, and in my mind, a little bit convoluted theories. And the district court had to walk through a lot of different practices and the way those practices interrelate in order to reach her conclusion. And that's part of the reason it's so long and so thorough. On the no license, no chip policy, part of the reason Qualcomm is able to do that is because it had the IP that was needed to practice certain standards. When uh, an international standards board chose the standards that would be used for cellular devices to be able to communicate with each other. Those standards incorporated Qualcomm's IP. So it means it has what's called standard essential patents. And when you have standard essential patents, anyone who wants to practice that patent, and in this case, that means any chip maker that's going to supply a mobile phone needs to get a license from you. You are required to license on what's called fair, reasonable, and non-discriminatory terms. So here what Qualcomm was doing was licensing the OEMs, the companies that actually make the final product or the cell phone or the iPad, and not licensing the companies that make the chips that practice the patents that go into those phones. And what the no license, no chips policy said is, OEMs, you will be practicing our IP, but you don't have to get a license from us so long as the OEM that you sell to has a license. And likewise, OEMs, we won't supply our chips to you unless you have a license from us. So it sounds like it's abusive. It sounds like it's monopolistic. But the fact of the matter is that in order to create an antitrust claim out of that, you have to show how that claim harmed competition in the relevant market. And in this case, somebody, whether it be the OEM 
or whether it be the chip rival, must take a license from Qualcomm because Qualcomm has the IP that goes into the practice of the OEM's product or the chip. So either the OEM or the chip maker has the license. And in this case, the court said there's nothing wrong with Qualcomm refusing to license its chip rivals and requiring the license to be at the OEM level. That was another piece of that. And once you get to that place, the no license, no chips policy is a little bit different. Because what the court saw was that Qualcomm saying, hey, chip makers, you can go sell to any OEM. You don't have to license to us. We're not going to sue you for infringing our patents so long as that OEM has a license from us and therefore in the patent world can legally use our IP. And what the FPC had to do to somehow suggest that that was anti-competitive was suggest that Qualcomm's royalties were so high so super competitive that it was able to then undercut with its chips the pricing of its chips rivals. And that left an OEM better off if it acquired chips and licensing from Qualcomm because it's cheaper because the chip rivals will have to charge more for their chips. They can't charge these low prices that Qualcomm's charging because they can't offset it with these high royalties. But in antitrust, based on precedent, the way that becomes an antitrust violation is if it's predatory pricing. And that's what this court said. They said only if that predatory pricing, will that violate the antitrust laws? And the FTC didn't show that it's predatory pricing. You have to show that it's pricing below cost to drive out your rivals to later recoup what you lost in those low-cost sales. And none of that was alleged or shown in the trial. That's how this court said the no-license, no-chips policy doesn't violate antitrust laws. ...entanglements for the company. Jen, the court said anti-competitive behavior is illegal under federal antitrust law. Hyper-competitive behavior is not. And that seems to illustrate the reasoning behind the court's decision. This was business, tough business, but not anti-competitive. Exactly. They even said later, this is just Qualcomm with sharp elbows. You know, hyper-competitive, aggressive, maximizing their profits. And all of that is fine. And all of that encourages innovation. And June... This is exactly why I have been saying for quite a long time, it's just very difficult for a plaintiff under current U.S. precedent to prove a legal monopolization in court because there's a very fine line between anti-competitive conduct and hyper-competitive conduct. And the district court found this to be anti-competitive. It crossed the line from hyper-competitive into illegal. And this appellate court said, no, it didn't. It didn't cross that line, and it's simply hyper-competitive. And it's an incredibly difficult determination for any judge or jury to make. And it's part of the reason why it's hard to prove monopolization, because in our courts right now, the prevailing approach is to be more concerned about what's called false positives than false negatives. And false positives refers to finding violations of antitrust law when the conduct did not impact harm competition. And they're more concerned about that than finding a false negative, which would be finding no violation when the behavior actually did injure. And it's exactly what I think Congress is thinking about and a lot of antitrust activists are thinking about right now because they think that emphasis needs to be flipped. They think there needs to be more concern over false negatives than there is over false positives. And this court showed the exact opposite. Their concern was about a false positive and finding that what they thought was hyper competitive behavior being anti-competitive. And this case was unusual because there was a, a rare split among the regulators where the Justice Department sided with Qualcomm and actually intervened in the lawsuit. 
And I'm wondering, was the Justice Department's position more of a business decision? Because there was a lot of talk about how important Qualcomm is to 5G, and the Trump administration had intervened to stop a Broadcom takeover of Qualcomm Mm -hmm. for that same reason. So how much Mm -hmm. was 5G and the importance of 5G to the country involved in the Ninth Circuit's decision? I don't think that it was involved very much. I think only in one aspect the court mentioned that the district court hadn't given enough weight to the pro-competitive aspects of what Qualcomm was doing. But the court didn't really get into it, and I really don't think that the 5G issue really entered into this decision. I think it would have been the same decision whether the Department of Justice intervened or not. But I do think that that intervention was in part political and related to the desire of this administration for America to be at the forefront of 5G and afraid that hampering Qualcomm's innovation in R&D by imposing these licensing restrictions would have hampered Qualcomm's own R&D and work in 5G. But the Department of Justice here, the uh, Macon Rahim, the Assistant Attorney General for Antitrust, has taken the position in the past that where a company may be violating its obligation um, to license standard essential patents in a fair, reasonable, and non-discriminatory manner, that that is, has nothing to do with antitrust law. That the question as to whether they're violating that commitment is a patent law question and a contract law question, and that it's not a violation of antitrust. And that's part of why he stepped in, because the district court said their failure to um, Uh, license their patents in a fair, reasonable, and non-discriminatory manner also violated antitrust law. And he wanted to make the point that he disagreed, that he didn't think antitrust had a part in that uh, sort of a business negotiation between two parties. The FTC hasn't said whether it's going to take any further action. It could ask for a rehearing. It could ask for an on-bank hearing of the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. It could go to the Supreme Court. What are its chances in either of those? Very low for both. Um, I don't see the Supreme Court taking this case, and even if they did with the conservative majority right now and understanding the way it's likely Gorsuch and Kavanaugh would look at this, I think this decision would be affirmed. And with respect to uh, getting a rehearing, this is the second panel of three judges on the Ninth Circuit that has criticized the district court's opinion. You know, about a year ago, Qualcomm asked for a stay of the district court's injunction. And in granting that stay a year ago, a different panel of three judges on this court said that the district court's decision had been controversial. Um, And now you have another three basically reversing it. I think that doesn't bode well at all for getting a rehearing or if a rehearing is granted, getting any kind of a change in this decision. Qualcomm has been fighting legal challenges around the world and regulators around the world for years. Does this decision basically cement its business model or is it still facing other challenges? Well, this decision only governs Qualcomm's conduct in the United States. So uh, to, to the way it licenses, let's say, in China, um, that's going to be governed by, you know, I think ultimately Qualcomm settled all of its issues in China, but however that was worked out, which I, I don't at the moment recall, but I think that there there was some negotiation of what those rates would be there. Um, so it doesn't really have that much influence 
on any of its legal skirmishes outside the United States. I mean, those are going to be based on the laws in Europe or the laws in Asia, which are different from those in the U.S. And in particular in Europe, it is at, it's quite a bit easier for a finding of what they call abuse of dominance to be found than it is to prove a company is a monopolist in the U.S. So now there is still one of the largest consumer class actions ever against Qualcomm, where $14.5 billion in triple damages are at stake. Will this decision affect that case? I think it will. Um, now, that case is under California state law and not under federal antitrust law. And this decision interprets federal antitrust law. And the California laws are a little bit different, but they're not that much different. So I think this decision is going to influence uh, a court that asks whether the conduct violates California's antitrust laws. And so it, uh, it will be difficult to say, well, it may not have violated the federal laws, but it, it does violate California's laws. I think it more likely that the opposite will be found. And we also think, June, in that case, that there was decision on class certification that was controversial. And that's up for appeal now. And we think that the class will be reduced. We think that decision will be changed. And if you start to reduce the class, it becomes less less and less likely that those plaintiffs are as aggressive uh, because it bring, makes it more difficult to bring the case if the class is very small or if the class certification is reversed completely. So we think right now that um, we, we see Qualcomm with a leg up on that case at this time. One legal expert said that this sort of decision indicates that courts think that antitrust has no role to play in patent misuse or use. Do you agree with that? No, I don't uh, actually agree with that. I, I do tend to agree with the court's decision that um, some violation of this brand, the fair, reasonable, and non-discriminatory obligation made to a standard-setting organization, that there, if there's been a violation of that, in, in my mind, I think that should be settled in contract law, patent law, maybe tort law. I don't think that arises to an antitrust offense, but I do still think that there are ways that patent rights can be misused that do arise to the level of an antitrust offense. Um, it might be harder to prove that in court after this decision. So I think this decision is really limited to the way standard essential patents are licensed and, and didn't really extend to other types of patent misuse. So I would hope that where there's patent misuse that can cross the antitrust line, that plaintiffs could still have success in court. Thanks so much for being on the show, Jen. That's Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Litigation Analyst Jennifer Ree. For more of Jen's analysis, go to BIGO on the Bloomberg Terminal. That's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcasts. You can find them on iTunes, SoundCloud, or at Bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. The Hartford understands protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-sized companies like yours to help manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com. 
Meet Gary. Gary's about to become an Einstein in an instant. Whoa, Einstein hair. I like it. That's right, Gary, because you're using Salesforce powered by Einstein AI to connect data, predict business trends, generate personalized content, and wow customers. I do feel a lot smarter. Because you're not just Gary anymore. You're Gary, empowered by Einstein AI. Did you hear that, team? I'm an Einstein. Oh, can I get a selfie? The number one AI CRM. Now everyone's an Einstein with Salesforce. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch strata coaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com.